after a raucous first half. The Seattle Seahawks wilted down the stretch, losing a disappointing game to the Atlanta Falcons. Former Seahawks beat writer and current betting analyst Joe Fan joins us to break down the loss and what it means for the team, as well as look ahead to the game against the Lions. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my virtuous producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? Virtuous. That's right. That's actually very correct. Thank you for saying that. Well, it's giving you a lot of credit, uh, actually. (laughs) I feel like uh, I've earned some good karma coming my way for sitting through what was a sinful offensive performance on Sunday Night Football. So I've really earned this, Jackson. Yeah, man. It was a low-scoring week across the NFL last week. I think think the Seahawks game ended up actually being one of the highest-scoring ones, which is a little odd uh given how they've wanted to play football so far this year but you're right man sunday was tough there was in my opinion just a handful of really winnable games on the schedule for seattle this year and this was definitely one of them uh i will say this the first half was fun uh but seattle just they can't seem to put a whole game together yeah the offense sputters in the second half again when it counts most i mean it was the it was the journeyman quarterback bowl right gino versus marcus mariota It is what it is. Uh, Wins aren't everything this year, but it was a fairly ugly loss. Uglier than I think that you or I would have liked to have seen. Yeah, absolutely. Fortunately, uh, we are lucky to be joined today by one of our favorite guests to talk more about it. You'll likely remember him from his fantastic work covering the Seahawks for NBC Sports. Now he's an ambassador for WinBets Sportsbook and contributes to Seattle Sports 710. He is Joe Fan. Joe, thanks for coming in. Hey, fellas, thanks for the invite back. It's good to see you guys again. Yeah, great to see you too, man. Appreciate the time. You uh, doing good down in Vegas? I am doing well down in Vegas. The uh, the 110 temperatures are starting to, to subside. And uh, last year, I, I just crossed my year anniversary here. And I would say like I moved from a Seattle summer to another Seattle summer because October and November, yeah. even into like the first week of December, we're just immaculate every single day, like 85 and sunny. So I'm hoping we get that again uh, because it was really fun last year. And I feel like we're starting to get into that season again this year here in Vegas. Uh, that's, that's great, man. Yeah. I mean, when we had you on the show last year, you had just moved down there. So it's good to hear that you're getting settled in. And it's been really fun watching your career evolve over the last few years. Uh, and personally, I, I feel fortunate to have gotten to know you on a one-on-one level. Uh, but, you know, we've really enjoyed your work as you cover the lines, not just for the NFL down there, but other sports as well. Now you're contributing to Seattle Sports 710, so it's great to see you involved in the Seahawks world again. Yeah, it's been nice to, to stick around with Seattle Sports just to, just to be able to stay connected to the Seattle Sports community beyond just Twitter. Um, you know, it's a, it's a community I am a part of, I grew up in, um, and I really enjoyed being you know, firmly entrenched in as a beach, uh, beat reporter for those two years after uh, being in the Bay Area for four and a half years. So it was sad to leave. It was an unexpected career pivot, giving, given NBC Sports Northwest going out of business. Um, and I love it down here in Vegas, but certainly nice to be able to have some ties back home. So I really appreciate the folks over there uh, letting me write a couple times a week and, and putting me on the air uh, for a guest hit once a week on Fridays. But um, you know, also enjoying kind of diving into the betting space. You know, I think I'm trying to find my footing still a bit where, you know, I think it's, there's a lot of different personalities in the betting space. And for the most part, it's all very sharp people who would, who would, uh, you know, try to tell you that, that they've got it figured out and they want you to tailor picks this, that, and the other, where I'm sort of like, this is kind of what I'm doing, but like, you should probably go the other way. Cause I'm an idiot that doesn't know shit about fuck. So yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it. <laughs> well, and so I, I, I've kind of <laughs> tried to find that lane in the sports betting space. Well, don't sell yourself short, man. I mean, I listen to a few different betting podcasts and I can say without hesitation, yours, your work that you do with that is my favorite because it's real. You know, I mean, you know, your stuff, you've got good reasoning for your picks. Uh, I, I definitely factor them into my own betting decisions, but you do it from an everyman perspective, right? You're 
you are a sports fan who gambles. And that's a really, really refreshing take uh, in a space where there are, like you said, a lot of really sharp guys who think they have it figured out. So I, I really do appreciate listening to you doing your thing. And, uh, you know, I, it's very curious to get your thoughts regarding the Seahawks from a betting perspective a little later, but it was a rough one for Seattle this weekend, man. Uh, as a professional sports betting analyst, how did that game match up with your expectations going in? I, I bet on the Falcons simply because I just, you watch both teams through the first two weeks. There's one that's been far more watchable. And Atlanta is consistently able to move the football. They covered the first two weeks. They should have beat New Orleans. It took uh, quite the collapse for New Orleans to win that game. And they had a chance with the ball down six in plus territory to beat the Rams in week two on the road. So I don't think there was any question going in which team had performed better through two weeks. I mean, even the Seahawks win in week one, it took two goal line fumbles. They didn't score a single point in the second half. I don't think any Seahawks fan walked away from that saying, oh, this team's going to the Super Bowl. We had it all wrong. They're still a contender, and they're right. better than the Broncos. They got severely outplayed in that game, and they got the the break speed off them in week two by the Niners where they didn't score an offensive point. So um, for me, I thought it was the Falcons. Um, I made my prediction of, of 20 to 17, so it was a little higher scoring than I expected. But the way it played out, I think is what is that's the formula you're going to see from the Seahawks a lot. The defense isn't very good. They're feeling the injuries. They they do miss Jamal Adams dearly. Um, I still don't know exactly what the Seahawks have in Jordan Brooks. The defensive line's been underwhelming. I don't know if we've heard Puna Ford's name called uh, know. Like once or twice. Um, you know, Daryl Taylor finally got his first sack, but uh, he'd been quiet. Boy, Mafe is, has been has been quiet out of the gates. It there's just not a lot of bright spots on the on the you know, and then the secondary is brand new. Uh, outside of Quandre Diggs. So I just don't know what else you would really expect. You know, the offense is going to look good in spurts because they're going to get stuff that's on time. And you have a quarterback in Geno Smith who's not going to make the big mistake. And he's athletic enough to be able to get you a little bit of off script stuff. Um, but as you've seen, and I know on our rundown, we're going to talk about DK Metcalf. The lack of explosives in the passing game is going to make it hard when you're trying to put together seven to 10 play scoring drives throughout four quarters. It's just hard to do and the Seahawks don't necessarily have the personnel for it. So uh, I just kind of watched that game and, and said, yeah, there were some really good things, but it's also sort of what you had to expect given um, this is a rebuilding year for Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot to cover there and let, let's go ahead and break it down. I mean, you mentioned the win against the Broncos. This game actually felt really similar to that game to me, uh, albeit with a different result. Obviously I thought the offense looked really crisp on the first half dozen drives or so. But like the Denver game, they kind of petered out down the stretch. And this time the Seahawks D couldn't protect the small lead that the offense was able to give them. It's interesting. Also in those two games, the parallels go to who is producing. You know, big catch for Colby Parkinson. Will Disley scores a touchdown. Right. Um, it was a lot to the tight ends. Um, and then, you know, you've got crossers that are open. And you're just able to consistently, um, you know, either convert on third down or avoid third down altogether. And when that's happening, it looks like it, it, it's it's easy. and But we know it's not. And we know that all it takes is one adjustment from a defense to say, hey, we're going to take these couple of routes away. We're going to make you beat us in these different areas. And we haven't seen Seattle be able to adjust in the same form and fashion um, that you would like to see them. But again, now that I'm kind of talking about this, you think about, Last year, when Russ was at quarterback, think about what week two against the Titans, where they're rolling, then can't score in the second half or overtime, they lose that game. The Vikings the next week, they come out of the gates uh, in the first couple quarters, uh, the first half, humming on all cylinders, it all falls flat in the second half. So something about what the Seahawks do, when teams counter, they are not able to counter back. And I won't pretend to be the X's and O's expert to, to tell you exactly why, but it is a, a, a trend that I think has... Um, really become a multi-year issue now. Yes. And that it means it's not a surprise when it happens. Yeah, and we're going to talk about some of those parallels to the last few years um, throughout the show because there was a sense that, okay, the Seahawks are probably going to be worse this year, but at least they'll be different. And and they haven't been so far. And, and that starts with the quarterback. We can talk a little bit about Geno Smith here. Uh, his first half was excellent. He completed 18 to 25 passes, which is crazy to throw 25 passes in a half, especially the first half uh, as a Seahawks quarterback. 
He had 218 yards at that point, two touchdowns. Uh, but in the second half, I mean, despite completing 14 and 19 passes, he totaled just over 100 yards, and the offense had just three points to show for it. What were your overall impressions of Seattle's quarterback in this one? I just think he is who he is, and I don't mean that as a cop out, but I mean he is a he's a veteran stopgap guy. You can do much worse than he's going to be competent. He's going to take care of the football. He can do enough to where you'd say, "All right, this guy, if the play is in front of him, he can make it." But again, the big issue is when you have a lack of explosives, especially when your best offensive playmaker lives and breeds on explosive plays. You know, DK Metcalf's never been a super efficient um, wide out. And so when you're not able to tap into what he does best, um, you're going to have problems. So, um, yeah, I just think it's par for the course when you've got a guy who is the bridge to the next guy. And it's going to look really good at times, and it has in a couple of different halves, one against Denver, one against Atlanta. But when it falls flat, it's going to fall flat because the air yards aren't there. It's check downs. It's stuff over the middle. Uh, it's safe. And when you're not getting any yards after the catch, when that's all it is, and you can't go into the intermediate or deep uh, parts of the field, um, it's going to look pretty stagnant pretty quick when it's not humming like it was in the first half. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on one hand, it was nice to see a longer leash for Gino. 44 total pass attempts. Uh, I think that's a number that Russell Wilson hit only three times as a Seahawk. Um, and, you know, for the most part, he was pretty good, to your point. I love his short and mid-range accuracy. He's got the highest completion percentage in the NFL through three weeks, but he doesn't seem to have much touch on the deep ball. You know, uh, it, it's like he's throwing a high fastball instead of putting air under the ball and letting Metcalf and Lockett do what they are so good at, which is adjusting to the ball. In Lockett's case, getting his body in position to where you know, he can time the catch and create that last little bit of separation uh, just in time to get his hands on the ball. DK being able to plant his feet and just sky over a defender and, and make that catch. But when you throw it that hard and you saw it too on the seam route to Marquise Goodwin, that should have been a touchdown. Uh, you know, Goodwin got behind the two defenders and all Gino had to do is put a little air under that ball and Goodwin runs under it for probably a long touchdown. Instead, uh, he throws it about head high the whole way. It gets batted down. Uh, and that was that. Do you see Gino as someone capable of making that adjustment, or is this just kind of what Seattle has? I think it's sort of who he is. That's not to say there won't be progress during the season, but it's a huge drop-off from from what Russell Wilson's biggest strength was. And Russell Wilson, you know, in his peak, which I don't think he's there anymore, but it's the off-script stuff and the athleticism and the stuff you can't game, pl game plan for as a defense, and then the moon ball that is so undefendable, unguardable. Even if you've got decent coverage, you give whoever it is, Lockett, Metcalf, a half step, he's going to put it over their shoulder, and it's going to be a completion, or you're going to have to interfere, and it's going to cost you the same amount of yards anyways. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, look at, look at DK Metcalf. He's never been an efficient receiver. If you look at his catch percentage based on targets, 58% as a rookie, 64.3%. Um, in his second year, 58% last year. He's back up to 64. So nearing his career high, but his yards per target is only 5.4, a career low. Uh, his yards per reception, below 10 for the first time in his career. He's only got seven first downs on 16 receptions. I mean, again, if, if you want to look to your issues, you're not being able, you not being able to tap into your best offensive player's biggest strength is going to be an issue. And, that's what shows up when the short and intermediate stuff isn't turning on all cylinders like it is in that first half. Well, you got to let DK go be the best player on the field. That's and when it. you have a quarterback that can't deliver the mail in that regard, you're going to have problems. And again, I think that's what the Seahawks are seeing now and what they're going to continue to see. And it's going to be a long, frustrating year for DK Metcalf because of it. Yeah, totally. And and I'm glad you brought up the receivers because this next thing I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, Seattle has long funneled their targets to their top two guys. This year, it's been even more concentrated. Uh, Geno Smith's thrown exactly 100 passes so far this year. 26 have gone to Lockett, 25 have gone towards DK Metcalf. So they've got a 51% target share, which is bananas. Um, so on the one hand, it's great to see them force feed their best two players. Uh, I do like that. I think, you know, 
think Metcalf had 12 targets this last game, but yeah, he only caught five of them. And his one really big play this year got called back when he made that insane catch on the 52 yard bomb. Um, but you know, Abe Lucas was a yard too far downfield between the, you know, two of them Lockett has been more efficient. That's not terribly surprising. He's got 21 of his 26 targets. That's really impressive. Um, 211 yards, 10 yards per catch is pretty low for him uh, compared to his career. He has yet to find the end zone. He hasn't even really got close to the end zone yet. I don't know if they're just not looking for him when they get down close. It's basically just been throw to DK near the end zone, which I'm usually fine with if the throws are good. But I mean, they took five end zone shots to Metcalf in this game, only converted on one of them. Uh, and it was the only ball that Gino threw high enough for him to get. Well, there's the one other one that was kind of sailing out of the back of the end zone. Um, but the others just got batted down. And and that was pretty frustrating to see when you've got a guy who can get a foot or more higher uh, than the defender. You know, you mentioned DK's only got 16 catches on the 25 targets, but just 135 yards on that. I Is it something where you can just say, hey, look, we're just going to throw one or two deep balls to DK and see what happens? Or is that something that defenses are just taking away and there's not much you can do about it? There has to be something you can do about it. You you know, I think that right. was the issue with with Russ is you can't just like accept that, you know, this cover two is just like this too deep safety look is just the end all be all checkmate. That's it. You're done. Um, there has to be something, even if it is just saying, hey, it's either an incompletion or you know, maybe you get lucky and it's pass interference or whatever, but but you at least have to keep the defense honest to a degree. So yeah, I think the baseline of just taking two shots down the sideline for DK per game, regardless of what happens, has to be part of the game plan. Um, when you talk about target share, you know, again, how many times how I, we've had this conversation for years now too, is who is really warranting of a piece of the pie? You can't, I just won't hear it, but Marquise Goodwin, again, veteran minimum dude. I can't imagine he had many calls for a contract outside of the Seattle Seahawks. It's, He's Philip Dorsett 2.0 in Seattle. Um, Dwayne Eskridge, uh, you hate to say it in a guy's third year, is trending towards being a catastrophic bust as a second-round pick taken before uh, Creed Humphrey, the center in Kansas City, number one center in all of football as a rookie. Um, or sorry, it's just Dwayne's second year, um, regardless. Yeah, but but to your point about that, you know, and I hadn't thought about this because I've always compared – Eskridge pick to Creed Humphrey. We had uh, Michael Sean Dugar on a couple weeks ago and he said, you know, I'm okay with him going. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, man. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to see this guy going out there playing like a top five receiver in the NFL and knowing like, Hey, he was a USC guy. I mean, there's no way Pete wasn't familiar with him uh, and to pass, but I mean, you know, we can, we can second guess that pick forever. Of course, the point remains, they don't have a third option. And while the tight ends have been really efficient this year, uh, Geno Smith was nine for nine targeting them in this last game for over a hundred yards and a touchdown. They're not good enough, at least yet. I think Fant maybe has the potential, but he's been super quiet ever since coming over. They're not good enough to be a focal point of the offense. They're kind of like, okay, the defense has taken away Lockett and Metcalf on this play. That leaves Disley open. That leaves Parkinson open. Um, we we haven't really seen the field stretching ability that Noah Fant is supposed to have yet. Uh, it's it's frustrating to watch, man. And you know, I I would like to see them keep the leash long with Gino moving forward. Uh, I don't think the defense is really good enough, and we're going to talk about them in a sec. I don't think they're good enough to run the ball as much as Pete Carroll would like to. Running game was actually pretty good this last week. Penny looked really crisp. Uh, Ken Walker had a couple of moments, but you know, Carroll wants to win with those guys and he just can't win. The defense is playing as poorly as they are. And, and let's talk about it. I thought at the very least, and granted, they don't have Jamal Adams. And I know that a lot of this supposedly new defensive scheme was going to be built around really weaponizing that guy. But the fact remains, they are not getting off the field. They forced one three and out through three games. One. That's worse than it's ever been before. They're allowing eight plays per opponent drive. Eight, man. It's crazy. They're giving up three first downs every drive. Yeah, I mean, it's been bad. I, I You said it perfectly. It's hard to uh, – I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm just kind of pulling up their 
giveaway takeaway numbers because it doesn't feel like you know they've had. I guess they do have you know two fumbles in the, the goal line against Denver that I'm forgetting about. So they do have four takeaways through three weeks, which isn't terrible. But yeah, when the pass rush isn't there, they're missing Shelby Harris. Uh, there isn't a single guy through three weeks that has uh, at least two sacks. Um, they can't stop the run even a little bit. I think Cordero Patterson still running around Lumen Field uh, untouched. Um, yeah, it's just going to be, it's going to make for long days. And we know that Pete Carroll ball is not shootouts. He hates it. That's not what he wants to do. But when you can't get a stop on third down and you're giving up points on every drive, um, that's sort of the situation you put yourself into. Now, is it the scheme? Is it going from 4-3 to a 3-4 that is just taking time to gel? I would like to think it shouldn't be because of the continuity they have with the defensive coaching staff, having Clint Hurt being a, be an internal hire. Uh, this ultimately is Pete Carroll's defense, has been since he showed up. Um, you know, who who on that defense should you really be expecting more from? Jordan Brooks, Daryl Taylor, um, you know, Quandre Diggs, maybe. But you also look at there's just so many unknowns there that um, I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's expecting too much to be surprised that it's been so bad. I mean, this is a team that had a five and a half win total yeah. uh, in Vegas for a reason and why they were picked to be dead last yep. in the uh, NFC West for a reason. So I think what's hard is when you're looking through this lens of, you know, it's a rebuilding year, what is to be expected and what is a disappointment even beyond that? Because, you know, you're searching for players that need to be foundational pieces and, and they might not be there. Yeah. You know, I, I actually thought that the rookie corners had played pretty well through the first two games. Uh, and then also Sidney Jones and Mike Jackson, uh, have also looked really good, you know, through the first 120 minutes of football, but they had, I mean, they look completely overwhelmed. And I don't think, I mean, Arthur Smith isn't running the most complicated offensive scheme in the world. Now, granted, they've got two really talented young weapons in Kyle Pitts and Drake London, but I mean, they were just so open so often. I know that makes it tough. I, you know, you asked who are the disappointments for me? I had such high hopes for Daryl Taylor and I'm not like, saying that he stinks or anything like that yet but like he is not making any impact plays you mentioned that I mean you saying Puna Ford on this show is the first time I've heard his name all season uh Jordan Brooks is going to get 10 to 12 tackles every single game that's sort of the scheme is you know let everyone else do their thing and he goes to the ball and that's great but like Bobby Wagner over the last two three years we're not seeing any game-changing plays from him. It's great that he's making a lot of tackles, but that's almost more a reflection of the fact that they can't get off the field. It's a volume stat. It's the least important stat uh, as far as I'm concerned because you need a guy that's going to force fumbles, who's going to pick off a pass once in a while, who can time a blitz and get a sack. And we're not seeing that from Brooks, who is the guy that I was highest on in this defense. It's It starts up front. You hear every coach say it. They have invested up front. I mean, Inchenio Wosu has been the best player on this defense by far. He has looked awesome this year. But outside of him, there's not a lot that you can look at with this defense and say, okay, they are building towards being really competitive on that side of the ball. It's hard to look beyond this year based on what we've seen so far and say, yeah, they're moving towards having a dominant defense again. Yeah, Daryl Taylor isn't a three-down defensive lineman. He's just not good enough at setting the edge, not good, good enough against the run to justify being a, a first and second medium type player. Um, he's a passing down guy. Let him pin his ears back and go without thinking about much else. Then maybe you hope that some of the other tools start to develop, you know, down the road, whether it's this year or next or in the future. Um, so I think he's playing too many snaps. Yeah, Jordan Brooks is a hard player to evaluate because you don't know how much of those tackles are empty calories because – uh, I mean, at some point, someone has to make a play and, you know, and get a tackle on every down. That's a run or a completed pass. You know, in this system, he's going to be around the football. That's just how it's designed, like you mentioned. So I do have a hard time judging what those numbers mean. Well, he said a Seahawks franchise record in tackles last year, right? And I don't, I don't know if that's really yeah. celebrated <laughs> as like, wow, this is... Well, the Seahawks set an NFL record for defensive plays in the season last year, and they did it before game 17. 
It's bad, man. I don't know. I think I think maybe <laughs> one of my is. big questions is, you know, and, and this I don't think this is really even a hot take. Um, but as much as the team needs to figure out, you know, you know they need a quarterback for the future. But but what else is on the list? I think, you know, you feel really good about the tackles they took this year, which is awesome. Those I are do. two big pieces to have checked off your to-do list. But but what's really checked off outside of that? How much do you really feel confident in, you know, different spots being good to go for when you get that quarterback in place, you can turn the key and be competitive, at least in the wild card picture once again. Um, I also think, and this is really high level, as high level as it goes, but I think it's worth mentioning, especially when you look at some of these trends that, that overlap year after year, no matter kind of what the personnel is, um, is, is Pete Carroll the right guy to lead that team? through the rebuild and into yep. the next era of Seahawks football. Um, and I think that's a really hard question to answer. I think it's been the way I would describe it. I think it's been justifiable to move on from Pete Carroll for years now, but I don't think you can trivialize finding someone who is objectively better. Um, I don't that's, think, that's I don't the think there are that many really good head coaches in the NFL. It's sort of the Kirk Cousins effect is you can do so much worse than him, but you can also do so much better than him, so you end up stuck with Kirk Cousins. And I think right now, where Pete Carroll is compared to some of his peers, I don't think he gives you the X's and O's advantage that some other coaches give you. I don't think he gives you the game management uh, advantages that other coaches give you. To me, it's it's camaraderie, it's culture, it's buy-in from players. That, that remains his soup du jour. Um, but when other coaches are able to run laps around you in other fields, um, it, it does put you in a disadvantage. And I think when it comes to in-game adjustments, stuff like that, it all goes into consideration that um, I don't think just because it's a rebuilding year, uh, that should give him a pass or or make that conversation off limits. Man, I am so glad you brought this up because I've been thinking ever since Sunday, is it too early to start having the Pete Carroll conversation? And, and I don't think it is, you know, when we had Greg Rosenthal from the NFL network on last year, we played a little game where Mike listed off every head coach in the NFL. And we said whether or not we'd rather have Pete Carroll or that coach. And I think Carroll ended up 13th, which is probably right around where Kirk cousins ranks as an NFL quarterback. I mean, you said, you said it perfectly. You can do a lot worse. And and I ended up being surprised by how many coaches I would rather have Pete Carroll over. But you know, when, when Seattle decided to stick with Pete and John Schneider over Russell Wilson and you know, the, the jury's out on that, you know, whether that was the right move with regards to the quarterback the selling point for it and and what I kind of talk myself into is, all right, yeah, this is not a team this year that is going to be competing with the elite teams in the NFL, but Carroll seems like the right guy to build the vibes. I mean, he is a vibes coach. He is the CEO aspect of the head coaching job because the thing that's easy to forget is the Seahawks are a $5 billion operation. I mean, they are a big money company and Pete Carroll is the CEO of that company. He does all of that stuff really well. I've often said, I really love Pete Carroll Monday through Saturday. I, I think he's trending towards bottom third on Sunday. And I think this season's a big litmus test for him. I, I thought he was the right guy to at least for the next couple of years, rebuild the culture, uh, the way that he had 10 years ago. And if nothing else, set the table for whoever was going to come next. I'm really doubting that now because you have to be able to win games and you have to be able to win games against bad teams at home. It's not like the crowd didn't show out. I mean, they had everything going for them and, and the team just didn't deliver. They seem unable to adjust to other teams adjustments when everything is scripted on offense for the first quarter, quarter and a half, they look really good. And then it's time to start calling plays based on what's actually happening in the game. Things fizzle out. The defense is not creating explosive plays. They're not creating turnovers and sacks the way that you need them to. And so the question that's been dogging me for three, four years now is what exactly is it that Pete Carroll does on Sunday that helps the team win? Yeah, I think it's a fair question. Again, it goes back to, 
you know, it's it's interesting the way you, you you change lenses. For years, you had these glasses on that were, you know, okay, the Seahawks are winning, but do they look like a Super Bowl team? Do they look like X team that's the favorite this year, whether it's the Chiefs or the Bills or the Buccaneers or the Rams or the Niners for a couple years or whoever is the top of the power rankings each and every week on NFL.com? Are the Seahawks anywhere near those teams? And they lacked continually those dominant wins where you say, that was a statement. It was, oh, that was kind of gross. But, like, they found a way and got it done in, like, very peak uh, stereotypical Seahawks fashion. You know, and so I feel like I got a lot of crap as a beat reporter. It was like, just, why are you so hard on them? They won, whatever. It's like, well, yeah, but, like, we're not judging them like we judge the Mariners where you're just looking for competency. You're looking at them compared to the best teams in football, and they don't stack up well. And the playoff results, you know, went accordingly. Now it's okay. You are sort of just looking for competency, and you're looking for, you know, different spots that you can point to and say, again, this is part of the future. That guy's part of the future. This is good. This is an area we need to work on. But while you're doing that, what are you saying is, hey, this is what we expected in a tough year. And okay, this is even a disappointment, um, even given the low expectations. And I think the defense being as bad as it's been through three weeks with the continuity of keeping an in-house defensive coordinator and Pete Carroll has been there obviously now for more than a decade. It shouldn't be this incompetent where guys are running free wide open. They're busting the secondary. The gap fits are horrific to where you've got Cordero Patterson getting to the second level before he's touched. That shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be going into week four and Pete Carroll's talking about those sort of fundamentals. But I feel like we've heard that from him at the beginning of the season, each of the last several years. So um, yeah, it's all worth continuing to talk about as this year goes on. Yeah. You know, the thing about Pete Carroll is, and this, this is sort of the argument for, why maybe the offense isn't as explosive as we want to be is that he's this defensive mastermind. And I, I think for a long time he was, he spent 40 years building a defensive scheme that turned football on its head. Um, that was 10 years ago. And the NFL is the fastest learning organism on the planet and they've learned and they've copied and they figured out how to beat the type of defense that Pete Carroll wants to run. And it's disappointing to be half a decade removed from a really good defense and be on another defensive coordinator and, and still just not seeing it work. So let's, let's talk about that uh, a, a little bit. I mean, as we look ahead to the lions game, is there anything that you see? Is there like a tweak that can be made that gives them a chance against a lions offense that is scoring a lot of points? I mean, it starts with stopping the run, and it doesn't look like DeAndre Swift will be there. It's going to be Jamal Williams, but he's been productive for the Lions. They have one of the best offensive lines in all of football. So you look at that matchup and yes, say it could be a long, long day for Seattle's defense in that regard. Then you talk about Amon Ross St. Brown, uh, DJ Chark, and TJ Hawkinson is a really f- a very fine trio of weapons. Um, yeah, you could do a lot worse. You could do a lot worse. And Jared Goff's playing pretty good football behind as a compliment, uh, complimentary piece to that really good running game. Luckily, the Seahawks have a great track record slowing down offenses quarterbacked by Jared Goff. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to pretend that that I have the answers from an X's no standpoint, or I am, you know, a, a more of a defensive expert than the coaches on the staff. But I just think it's more noteworthy that that. It's that is that it is as bad as it is, and I think also it goes philosophically, you know, when it comes to a big fourth down call, and they ended up kicking the field goal instead of going for it on fourth down. You know, we've seen time and again over these last few years, Pete Carroll put the majority of his faith in his defense getting a stop as opposed to the offense helping you win the game, and you know take maybe some of the pressure off of the defense to get that big stop that they haven't been getting the last couple of years. So I think that's also a frustration. It's not only that you feel like the the um, defensive mastermind part of Pete Carroll's arsenal is, is waning, but also um, it's sort of this stubbornness to acknowledge it and say, okay, that's not the strength of our team right now, and we've got to kind of rely on the offense more. Now, you, you probably couldn't, you know, you, 
who knows this year in a rebuilding year, you know, Geno Smith, not Russell Wilson. But but again, I think all of that still bears remembering and bears talking about when discussing is Pete Carroll the right guy for the job down the road? Um, you know, when it comes to picking players, identifying guys in free agency um, and ultimately, you know, schematically, culturally building this team back into a winner. You know, the thing about this Lions game is on paper, it seems pretty winnable. Uh, we have this idea that the Lions suck and it's because they have for a long time and the vibes have been terrible. But Dan Campbell's really got something going there. Uh, I know you and I were chatting about it off air, but you mentioned that the Lions are, I think, second in the NFL in points right now, uh, third in yards. Jeffrey Okuda, their corner, is playing like the best cornerback in the league. They've been really, really tough, uh, 3-0 against the spread. They're six and a half point favorites in this one, man. And honestly, as crazy as that sounds, that seems right. I think that number is is plenty justified given they've been at home. They easily could be a two and one. They should be two and one. You talk they about really conservative should. decisions, going for a long field goal attempt rather than going for it in a late fourth down. Part of the big a big part of the reason why the Vikings come back and win that game, despite the Lions looking like the better team for really three quarters of that game. Um they, they sort of beat the brakes off the commanders, even though uh, Washington scored a couple uh, end-of-game garbage-time touchdowns. And then they get a backdoor cover and score 35 points against the Eagles, a team that defensively, the back-to-back weeks, has dominated the Vikings now and then the commanders. So uh, Detroit's been very impressive, and there's still lots to be desired um, from that defense. But Aiden Hutchinson, second overall picks, already got a three-sack game under his belt. You mentioned Jeff Okuda. When the Seahawks are already limited – in terms of reliable targets in the passing game, if you just eliminate DK Metcalf, which he just eliminated Justin Jefferson, and I think even the 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 most homer of Seahawks fans would say that Justin Jefferson is probably the better, more complete player than DK Metcalf. Um, yep. You know, I think uh, you're looking at this as the six and a half points makes a lot of sense. The number one running team in the NFL, they averaged 5.9 yards per carry, and the Seahawks just saw – Cordero Patterson run all over him for more than 140. So, you know, I think it's it's going to be tough. And you'd like to see, again, just some of the fundamentals. You mentioned what's something you'd like to see fixed defensively is you've just got to be able to meet somebody at the point of attack. You can't let – you've got to be able to get off a block. You've got to be able to fill a gap. It can't be six yards in the Jordan Brooks tackle every single time the Detroit Lions decide to run the football. And they'll be missing DeAndre Swift – that will hurt, but Jamal Williams has been uh, successful so far. And, yeah, I think what the number is, being on the road, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it does, and that's that's really disheartening. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think the Seahawks are in the Lions' tier right now, which is kind of a crazy thought. Um, you know, the, I get a lot of Jimmy Garoppolo vibes from Jared Goff, where if you got the right – weapons and scheme around him he can make that work and he really has been making that work and with Mariota having the type of game that he just had with his weapons there's no reason to think Goff doesn't do the same thing you know one player we hadn't mentioned yet that I thought was excellent in week one and pretty good in week two all things considered uh was Cody Barton and he was atrocious in week three he he was terrible he was just out of position he was getting completely erased by blocks by pulling guards and a lot of those big runs were to Cody Barton's side to the point where Pete Carroll was as tough on him in his midweek presser as he ever is on a guy. So it's, it's one of those seasons where you need a lot of these role guys to step up and show that they can be a part of the future. And I'm just not sure who that is at this point. So it's going to be a fascinating game to watch. I think Seattle is going to have to open up the offense and score a lot of points. And if they just, glue Akuda to DK Metcalf that could take him right out of it. And it's, it's going to mean Gino is going to have to go out and find a way to win. So let me ask you this. If the Seahawks do pull off the upset, if they do win this game, how do you think they will have done it? Their run game will get better and more consistent, you know, with Rashad Penny and, and Kenneth Walker, and they'll be better on third down. They'll have to get off the field, which means winning on first and second down against the run. Um, it's a tall task. Again, Detroit's got one of the best, if not the best, offensive lines in all of football. They have legit talent across the board. They covered a lot last year. Uh, and covering Campbell's back, he's 3-0 against the spread this year. They're at home. Um, 
if it's going to be an uphill battle. I think the DK Metcalf Jeff, Jeff Okuda matchup is tough because you know I think no matter who DK Metcalf is playing, you say okay, he can beat him deep just on sheer athleticism. But when you're working yep. in the short and intermediate, you know I remember hearing in Pittsburgh his rookie year when I was there and I was in an elevator and one of their local like pregame shows was you know mentioning DK Metcalf turns like a battleship. And, you know, he ended up scoring a touchdown against him that week. And that was, I tweeted that quote out and it got some traction. And that's not the case. That's, that's an exaggeration. But at the same time, he's not Stefan Diggs. He's not Keenan Allen. He's not a guy who's breaking you down in a five-yard phone booth. Um, he's a guy who is just going to physically overwhelm you. And so when that already isn't really a part of your passing game, it could be a really, again, a, a tough day for DK Metcalf. Um even to get the the little bit of production he has been been getting in that short and intermediate, but um, I would say if we're going to give predictions, twenty seven seventeen would be my my prediction in in the Lions' favor. All right, that that's uh, it's lower scoring than than I anticipated. I I do think you can score on on Detroit. I I will say this: Seattle is going to have to score points in the second half. I think I I'd be surprised if Detroit stays under thirty points in this game. Um, they've said, you know, being without Swift is a big deal, but Jamal Williams has been one of the most effective running backs in the NFL so far this season from a pure production standpoint. Uh, you know, so to the point you made earlier, I don't, I don't know that there's a huge drop off there. They haven't even gotten TJ Hawkinson involved yet this year. And I think he's a really dangerous weapon. Tight ends have had a lot of success against, uh, the Seahawks defense over the last few years. So I want to zoom out a little bit. Talk about the rest of the season as a whole. First of all, when the line came out for the Seahawks at five and a half before the season, were you taking the over or the under on that? I actually liked the over, and you know it's going to be a painful watch to get there. But it actually, if you look at the number before the season started, it was a five and a half, and it was juiced, at least on win bet, to the over. Meaning uh, it was like instead of minus 110, which is most any bet that's set out to be 50-50, you would just assume it's going to be minus 110 on both sides. Well, and, and just just to clarify, what that means is in order to win $100 on that bet, you have to bet 110 That's Correct. And the Seahawks uh, over was juiced to like minus 145 or minus 150, which means you'd have to bet 140 or $150 in order to win $100, um, which means the money and the, the action was coming in on the Seahawks over, which is notable given how low the expectations were from a national perspective on this team. To me... I thought because of the continuity within the coaching staff, uh, that would lead them to be competitive enough. Geno Smith's been in the building. He's a respected leader. I think he's better than people give him credit for. And we've seen that in spurts through these first three games, that they'd be able to win ugly. They'd be able to win weird games like Denver in week one, where they get two fumbles on the goal line. They were outplayed for pretty much all of it, but yet somehow they they won the game. Um and like you mentioned, there's a lot of games on the schedule where they should be able to hang around. Now they have the Chiefs later in the year. They have, you know, the Bucks. They've they've got games where they'll probably get blown out. And we saw that in week two against the Niners. But for the most part, most of the league is so mediocre that the Seahawks are gonna be able to have these games where it's the fourth quarter and you're saying, Well, the Seahawks are only down three. How'd that happen? You know, they've been getting yeah. worked. You know, kind of like the the Broncos <laughs> hanging around against uh, the Niners, where the Niners dominated that game for 50 totally. minutes. And all of a sudden, Russell Wilson has one good drive, and they lose because Jimmy Garoppolo is that bad. But the whole right. game, you're just thinking, gosh, the Niners are dominating this game. And that's how I feel like the Seahawks are going to be able to script it. Um, and that was my expectation going into the year. And I still think they can get there. Yeah, I, I was just going to ask you that. You know, Now that we're three games in and, and taking a look at the rest of the schedule, do you still think they got a shot to get to six wins? And it sounds like you think there's at least a chance. Yeah, I mean, let's go through it. I guess if we're going to ask the question and talk about it, let's let's go through it with the, the slate of opponents. So Falcons was certainly a chance, didn't get it. Lions, I don't expect this to be the one. Um, but I think between the Lions and the Saints, these two weeks, maybe you get beat bad one week and another one you have, you know, sort of a coin flip at the end where if you can put together a drive, that's their biggest issues. They can't score touchdowns in the second half. They don't have one through three games. That makes it hard to win. They have three game. offensive points in three second halves. <laughs> it's bad. Um, but New Orleans, you know, Jameis Winston's already got five picks. So, 
you know, if he's giving away the football so charitably, like you've got to imagine even on the road in New Orleans, he might give you a chance to win. Uh, Arizona, both those games should be winnable. I, I just think Arizona's a bad football team. I agree. Uh, the Chargers on paper are better, but the, their injuries are racking, are stacking up. Justin Herbert's not 100%. They just lost their left tackle for the year. Joey they just Bosa, got housed probably, by the Jaguars. Probably not playing in that game. They get obliterated by the Jaguars. Giants at home should be winnable. Cardinals again. Bucks, you're going to get blown out. The Raiders are bad enough and don't play well enough that they'll play down to the Seahawks level, especially on the road. They, they can win that game. So they're there. The Panthers, kind of the same scenario. The, the Panthers like a, are a better version of the Seahawks, uh, in my opinion. The Jets are there. So yeah, you can you can get five more there. And you maybe you, you upset the Rams or Niners uh, one time mm-hmm. in a sort of a fluky divisional game that you see every now and again in this league. But um, I'm not giving up hope on the over if you've got a ticket. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I do. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear it, but <laughs> I mean, from less of a wins and loss perspective, what are you hoping to see over the final four months of the season? Daryl Taylor's got to show you. He's the guy you want to see the same thing from Moff Mafe. Is I saying that right? Yep. Uh, he's got to show you the same thing. Jordan Brooks. You'd like to see a splash player too, to make you feel more comfortable that, that he is a franchise linebacker and a, a former first round pick and not just a guy who, is collecting empty calories with his 10 tackles a game. Um, you know, I think you've seen enough already to feel at least somewhat optimistic with Kobe Bryant, Mike Jackson, and certainly Tariq Woolen. Um, and I think all of those guys have potential where you feel good about. And then, um, you know, more from the tackles. They, they look like they're, they're, they're set. You've got them figured out moving forward. That's great news. Um, but, you know, I think... You mentioned it. Um, why can't I think of the tight end? Noah Fant hasn't been good enough. You know, he doesn't even have double-digit catches through three weeks. Got to get him going somehow. He was one of the big pieces that came over. Um, probably the biggest piece. You know, Shelby Harris, as of now, still a really good player. Although they're, you know, they're missing him. He's hurt. But um, Noah Fant's young enough to be able to be like one of your franchise cornerstones, or at least a player you're building around where you feel good about the tight end spot. So that's really all it is. It's just. You're just trying to check things off the to-do list during the year to where you can get closer and closer and closer to feeling like you're a quarterback away. And they're not there yet, um, and they probably won't be at the end of the year, but you'd like to at least feel closer to that point than you are currently. Yeah, I that's exactly how I see it. You have to define the shopping list at the end of the season because they're going to have four picks likely in the top 50 next year. They're going to have well over a hundred million dollars in cap space to go out and attack some of these deficiencies in free agency. Um, you know, the avenues will be there, but you have to know what you're shopping for. And, and for me, that's exactly what the last 14 games of the season are about is, is figuring out, okay, what can we live with that we already have and where do the cupboards need to get stocked? Because they will have the resources to do that. Um, you know, uh, we could keep doing this for a long time, but I know we both got to get out of here pretty soon. Before we do that, I want to know for the gamblers out there, tell us your three favorite NFL bets this weekend. Okay. All right. This is a tough slate and I was going through it. Usually I write the article on, uh, on Wednesday evening for a Thursday morning release, but I'll do this now. Um, I don't love betting Thursday games to begin with. Uh, so I'm avoiding that one. Um, Going to the Sunday slate, uh, I like the Bills as three-point favorites. That was three and a half. It's been bet down to three, so not having to deal with the hook anymore. I like that with Buffalo. Uh, I think coming off of a loss, you don't want to go down Narrative Street too much, but I, I think they are going to be out for blood for a little you know, a little bit in this one, oh, man. knowing that they outplayed the Dolphins, double the yards, double the first downs, and they lose that game by two. Um, I, I have a lot of respect for the Ravens. I just think the Bills are a class above everybody in the AFC, even though they did lose last week. So I like the Bills uh, as a road favorite. Always something that makes you a little bit nervous, but I just think they're the better team. Um, I sort of have a betting philosophy of just if I lose bets, lose bets on good teams. You know, if you get too cute and you're like, hey, all right, I think this is the Jets week and they get beat by 20. You're like, what do you, why am I doing that? Why am I, why am I even giving, there. The, why am I even giving the Jets a chance to lose money for me? Um, yep. and then I like the Raiders and the Raiders have cost me money the last two weeks, but, um, I like them at, in this spot, two and a half points. Uh, they can win by a field goal. You know, it's going to be sweaty. Derek Carr, probably like a, a pick six when they're up seven in the second half. Um, <laughs> but I just don't like what I've seen from Denver's offense. And, um, until that starts to hum, 
more than one drive a game. And I know the Niners have a great defense, but uh, it's been three weeks now. That includes a game at home against the Texans. Um, I think at some point the Raiders have to figure it out. Chandler Jones still doesn't have a sack on the year. Max Crosby has one, maybe two. You expect those two to get going a bit more. Uh, and then the offense just has too much talent to to leave as many points on the board as they have. And we've seen Darren Waller drop touchdowns. We've seen Derek Carr miss guys. Uh, Devontae Adams has been quiet for a couple of weeks in a row. Uh, I like that spot for the Raiders. And then I would say to finish it up, um, especially given this game might not be played in Tampa due to uh, Hurricane Ian. Is that what his name is? Hurricane Ian? Yep. Uh, Chiefs are, are laying two on the road. Might end up being a neutral site game. Um, but again, I think there's legit worry about that Tampa Bay offense. And we know the defense is going to keep them in games, uh, which is why the number is, is only two, in my opinion, because of uh, out of respect for Tampa's defense. But I think they've got issues offensively. And I don't think it's just a foregone conclusion. You could say, they'll just figure it out. So I'm going to bet on them to figure it out this week. Well, Mike Evans is coming back, sure. But you don't know about Julio Jones. Um, you don't know about Chris Godwin. Uh, the running game hasn't been there. Leonard Fournette has been really unproductive. Um, and so I like the Chiefs uh, laying two on the road wherever they end up playing. So I would say Chiefs minus two uh, on the road against the Bucks. Raiders two and a half at home uh, against the Broncos. And then the Bills minus three on the road against the Ravens. All right, guys, you heard it. Bills, Chiefs, Raiders, get your bets down. Uh, only where it's legal, of course. And uh, don't bet more than you can afford to lose. But uh, you've got some good advice coming your way from from Joe. Uh, hey, man, we really appreciate your time today. I know those listening do as well. Before we let you get out of here, why don't you remind everybody where they can get more of you? Yeah, on Twitter at Joe underscore fan. And then my written work at seattlesports.com and, and winbet.com. So appreciate you guys having me back. It's a fun podcast. Uh, again, like you mentioned before I left, it was nice to be able to, to get to know each other a little bit play some golf. Hopefully we can do that again here real soon. And you make the trip down to Vegas where I'm back up in the Northwest. Um, but appreciate you guys. Uh, it's good chatting with you and uh, hope, uh, look forward to more conversations in the future. Yeah. Book it, man. R right on. Super grateful for you. We'll definitely have to link up on the course again and shit, man, we might have to have a little trade discussion in our dynasty league too. <laughs> Speaking of Deandre Swift injuries. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got Jamal. So, uh, you know, you just let me know. <laughs> All right, Joe, thank you so much, man. Uh, as for Mike and I, you can find us on social media as well. I am on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Mike is at, at Mike Barwin, and the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at, at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like the show, Drop us a five-star rating and leave a quick review. I don't know that we'll have any other fire alarms in the middle of the shows moving forward, but uh, I think that's just a reflection of the heat that Mr. Fan was bringing today. Uh, we are so lucky to have you guys listening, supporting the show, not just by subscribing to the pod, but by sharing the episodes, rating us, uh, leaving reviews. We're almost up to 100 five-star reviews, which is crazy. It honestly means the world to Mike and I. We will be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Oh.